If you weren't with us on Christmas Eve, man, we had an awesome time. It was great seeing our kids in particular lead us in worship and sing. And uh, there's got to be all kinds of good uh, sermon illustrations in this. But uh, if you were here, you saw that we had to start a little bit late. uh, And then that the song that the kids were singing with didn't seem to work quite right. If you didn't hear through the grapevine, that is because uh, of all the things that we brought to uh, just be able to enjoy worshiping together before the throne room of Christ, I forgot the power cable. And so there was no power to the laptop, and in God's sovereignty and goodness, it died right at 4 p.m., right when we started the service. Uh, But also in God's good um, care and love towards us, Austin King happened to have the exact right power cable that we needed out in his car, and so he shimmied out there and got that. We plugged it in, we were able to go. Um, So I'm not perfect. There's the whole sermon right there, right? None of us are perfect. Amen, says my wife. Pastor's not perfect. (laughs) He needs, uh, I need, we need God's grace. Um, if you have been with us these last several weeks, we have been in a very fun Christmas series going through this Old Testament book called Isaiah, 66 chapters, but every so often in this book that's really about God's judgment, God's just judgment for sin, his punishment for our wrongdoing are these promises that pop up in chapter 7 and in chapter 9, chapter 11, uh, we saw just a couple days ago in chapter 64, uh, that show us that there is a solution on the way, that there is a promised Messiah who is going to come and who is going to solve the problems that we cannot solve ourselves. Uh, This morning, we are towards almost the very end of the book. We are in Isaiah chapter 61 this morning. If you have your Bible, you can begin flipping there to Isaiah 61. We're going to read the first four verses of Isaiah 61, and this is kind of one of the finishing touches that God gives to the prophet Isaiah to speak to his people, that not only is God promising that he's going to send his goodness and his grace to us, that he is not unaware of the problems and he is not uncaring of our problems, that he is going to send someone down to us to fix what we cannot fix in ourselves, but here in chapter 61, there is a message for God's people then and now that says, This mission that I have, says the Lord God Almighty, this mission that I have to send my love and grace down to save people like you and me, I want you to be a part of it, says Jesus. It's not just something I'm going to do on my own, although Jesus is the only one who can save, but he's saying, I don't necessarily need you, but I want you, which is so much better. I want you to be a part of sharing the good news and the hope that I have for the world. And this really is my prayer for our city. This is my prayer for our nation. This is my prayer for our world this morning as we see God's word here unfold in the first few verses of Isaiah 61. So let's read this together to open our time. Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Let's pray together. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises, Old Testament and new. We thank you that your word is complete, that it is perfect, that it is without error, that it is not simply a download of information and is not facts and figures, although it is certainly a book of fact, Lord, it is also a book of promise. It is a book of your message of love and grace and mercy to a people who did not deserve it. We still do not yet this morning, Father. We never will deserve it, Father, but you didn't come because we had earned it. You didn't come even because we had asked for it. You came because you loved us, because you desired to rescue us. And Father, we pray that your heart of rescue, that your heart of restoration would fill us afresh this morning and that it would, it would fill us in such a way that it might overflow out of us this morning as Trent has prayed, Lord, in our day-to-day lives moving forward, that the, the refresh of the reminder of the goodness of Christmas, Lord, that we might take that and share it with our city, share it with our world, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Four applications here from the four verses in Isaiah 61 this morning. The first I want us to consider is this, His anointing to do gospel restoration. His anointing to do gospel restoration. Again, the first part of verse 1 says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. An obvious question arises immediately, right? Who is the me? Who is this one of which Isaiah here through the Word of God speaks? Uh, So-called scholars, there are great scholars on the Word of God. There are terrible so-called scholars uh, of the Word of God. Some of the more terrible scholars have thought all kinds of things to answer this question. They have suggested various biblical historical figures like Zerubbabel or Jehoiachin, also great names for all you ladies-in-waiting who are trying to decide what to name your child. All available. Zerubbabel, Jehoiachin, Moses, they suggest Uzziah maybe is the fulfillment of this, Uh, Ezekiel, Cyrus, maybe even Isaiah himself, that he is the fulfillment of this. Some have said, maybe it's me, maybe it's you and me, or it's a pastor or some particular spiritual person here alive today. Or maybe it is some sort of church or nonprofit ministry that is called to to fulfill the me. Uh, I can tell you right off the bat to assign the me to any one of these alone would be a a terrible mistake. So let's go back to the Word now and figure out what do we know. Well, the Bible says the Spirit is upon me. We know that the Spirit here, it is speaking of the Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, third person of the Trinity. The Spirit marks the coming of the Messiah, And that is important for us. Listen a little bit earlier in Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So it says, the Bible says in Isaiah 61, the Lord has anointed me And it is the Holy Spirit that is going to do the anointing on this me. The word for God and Lord God here in Isaiah, in Hebrew, is the word Yahweh. Uh, It shows up twice in verse 1, Yahweh the first time and Yahweh Adonai the second time. And Yahweh means in, in English, I am, or I am that I am. Now, we know that the prophet Isaiah, his overall message in the book that he has written 
is that God saves and redeems his sinful people. Through all of the judgment, the ultimate message is that God will save and redeem his people. Isaiah's name itself is a form of that word Yahweh, and so Isaiah's name means Yahweh will save. So God's people wait for gospel restoration. They wait for God's promises, in fact, His covenant, unbreakable promises to be fulfilled. Look in another prophet, a contemporary prophet of Isaiah is Jeremiah, and in Jeremiah chapter 31, the word is this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Continuing in verse 34, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So here we are, we're in Isaiah, we're in Jeremiah. Now fast forward 700 years to a fairly unimportant region of the world known as Galilee. Go to the New Testament, the book of Luke, and chapter 4. The scene is this, Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he begins his public ministry. He is about 33 years old, and he walks into a packed synagogue in his little old hometown now of Nazareth, and he breaks out a scroll. He picks a a particular scroll that maybe they didn't know which one it was, but he knew which one it was, and he unrolls this massive scroll, and in front of those in the synagogue that day, he reads this off the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And every eye in that synagogue is fixed on Jesus as he reads. And then he says this, today I fulfill that scripture. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the anointed one. He brings the good news, the gospel. He's the only one who can. And Jesus alone in saying this is telling us he alone can end poverty. He alone can heal broken hearts. He alone can break physical and ultimately spiritual chains. He says the grace that I bring is for the outcast. It's for the broken, it's for the Gentiles, it's for the widows, it's for the sick. And he's saying that the wideness of God's mercy ought to astound you, that his grace is scandalous in its reach. It's available to anyone who will ask in this entire broken world in which we live. Imagine you're there, imagine you're in the synagogue. How would you respond? Well, how did the crowd gathered in that synagogue respond that day? If we look at Luke chapter 4 and verse 29, do you know what their response was? You know, everybody sort of knows, you know, we've got the the baby in the manger, the swaddling clothes, the angels singing. We've got those parts memorized. Luke chapter 4, verse 29, memorize this verse. This is their response. They tried to throw him off a cliff. Did you know that? Jesus walks into the tabernacle, reads the book of Isaiah, says, I am the fulfillment of it. And this grace, this wild love that God has is for everybody, and they tried to throw him off a cliff. Is this striking? Why? 
what is in their hearts that would make them do such a thing? I, I would suggest to you there's at least two reasons. The first is nobody really likes being told that they have a problem. Our hearts are designed in such a way that we resist the idea that we can't do life on our own. We resist the idea that we're sinful, and we resist the idea that our hearts are broken and that the world is broken. Uh, or if we're going to blame somebody, it's certainly not going to be ourselves. But secondly, they resist the idea that God's grace is for more than just their tight little legalistic circle. They are extremely uncomfortable with the idea that the gospel, the good news of God's grace, would go to anybody who's not a Jew or anybody who doesn't follow all the laws and procedures that they do. Oh, that we would not be a church that echoes either one of those sentiments that we would be a city on a hill here within this city that would communicate very clearly that God's grace is for all people, that regardless of what you've done or who you are or what you've experienced, that you can, in a fresh way, experience God's matchless, life-changing love, and that we would not be a people that think that we are so well put together that we somehow have, have moved past the need for God's grace. Oh, I'm, I'm a Christian now. I'm so spiritual now. I don't need that kind of love. No, 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 no. Isaiah has something so much better for us. Number two is this. We've seen that Jesus is the one who fulfills clearly this prophecy. But number two, our anointing to bring gospel restoration. Jesus is at the center. He is bringing the good news of the gospel. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. But we have been invited in to be a part of it. Look to another portion of Isaiah. This is a beautiful verse that gets picked up in the New Testament multiple times. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in Jesus, and we are his people, and we're invited to join in his vision and his mission to see our city made new by the gospel. We get to be the bringers. Anyone who knows Jesus is capable, equipped, and called to do this, to bring others to know Jesus. Here the word is proclaim, to explain, to invite, to share with others, to show the way that we live that Jesus is who He says He is and that the promises that He has are real and that the hope that we put in Him is worth the wait. Right? I don't do the good news. I can't save anyone. I can't even save myself. But I bring the message of the good news. I bring people to Jesus. Uh, when Jesus was calling his first disciples, the 12, uh, there's a story about the two brothers, Andrew and Peter, and we're told that Andrew literally brings Peter to introduce him to Jesus. Look at John chapter 1, towards the end of chapter 1, verse 41 and 42. He first found his own brother, Simon, or Peter, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. All he did was use his words and use his feet. He goes to somebody in his family that he loves who has not yet met Jesus, and he goes, Peter, we found the guy. You got to meet him. And from there, Jesus changes Peter's heart and life, as he does for every single one of us. This reminds me, this passage reminds me who I am and it reminds me what I do or who we are and what we do in God's story. Who am I or who are we? Well, who here was broken and in need of Jesus' grace? 
Anyone? Anyone? Yeah, all of us, right? Who here was set free by the gospel, but God is still working on me? I've been set free, but this side of glory, I still need his work, his grace in my life. What do I do then? Well, who here knows anybody who also could benefit from the life-changing love of Jesus? You know anybody that needs the love of Jesus? I know a few people, right? Jesus did it for me. He showed me his love. He's still showing me his love on a daily basis, and he can do it for you too. That is the message that we share. Who is this scripture all about? Who is in need of this? The Bible says, the afflicted, the poor, the brokenhearted, those captive to someone or something, the mourning, the grieving, in other words, it's for everybody. It's for all people. All of us have been and still are here in some way or another. The grace that saves us is also the grace that changes us. Let me say that again. We never outgrow the good news of the gospel. The grace that saved me is the grace that continues daily to change me because I still have those sinful habits and and the Holy Spirit is continually making me more and more into the image of His Son. Another way to put it is you never outgrow the simple, beautiful gospel. Uh, We can, in our pride, somehow start to think, well, I did the gospel thing, now I'm moving on to bigger and better things. No, 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 no. To follow Jesus is to be daily reminded of his amazing grace for us and how much we need it and how good he is. The gospel is for the lost and it's for the found. The gospel allows me, who I would say I've been a Christian since 1998, and it allows me to admit freely that I still struggle with being angry, with getting frustrated, with, with being controlling, with a whole variety of sins. I am not perfect. I look forward to a day in heaven when I will be, but I am not perfect, and the gospel frees me to admit that. When I became a Christian early on in high school, I was brought from death to life in that moment. When I said, Jesus saved me, and by his grace, he saved me. My sins were paid for in that moment. His righteousness was applied to me in that moment so that before the throne room and the judgment seat of Christ, I am declared not guilty for all time. In that moment, I was justified before a holy God And my place in heaven is secure for all time, but this side of heaven, I still struggle. And that's true for all of us. I personally, I can lose sight of the fact that my new identity is in Christ and not in something that I need to build or create. I can forget that I'm a blood-bought son of God, but that never changes because of his grace. I can forget that I'm not the star of the show and that he is, but he's not in danger of losing his seat. I sometimes still run back to the sewers of sin to help instead of running up to the goodness and the grace and the hope of Christ, but his love for me is not changed, nor is it for you. God is still working on me. He is still working on you. That is called the grace of sanctification, that he not only justifies us, but he continually sanctifies us. Listen to Romans chapter 6 on this topic in the New Testament. We know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not therefore sin let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Jesus is the one who has come. He is the anointed one who will save. He has invited us into his mission to save others here on this earth. Thirdly, I want to talk to us, the scripture, the Lord wants to talk to us about our deep needs and our broken world as we think about the realities that we're all fully aware of, of people hurting and struggling, dealing with grave sin all around us, all of us, right? Everyone, even the politicians, during election season, during campaign season, all of us recognize that something is seriously wrong in our world in our country, in our city, in our homes. But Christians, by God's grace, really are the only ones who can freely admit that the problem is real, that the problem is in here, and that there is one who can fix it. Jesus alone can save us, restore us, personally and as a people, as a city, as a nation, as a world in our multitude of deep and serious day-to-day needs. He is good news for the poor. Many in our world are overwhelmed by debt or struggling with low income or are trapped, they may feel, in encyclical poverty. But the gospel empowers us to join in Jesus' mission, to join in Jesus' generosity in showing that same generosity to others to help meet physical and financial needs among people. I am incredibly grateful to all of you at our church who, who give generously to, among other things, help support our mercy fund so that when people present needs to us that we can step into those needs. And oftentimes money helps to support them where they are and, and change lives. I'm grateful to all of you who were generous in giving so that we could give gifts to a number of families here in our city through our school system to be able to show them the generosity of Christ in action. I'm thankful for a number of you who you meet someone, you run into someone, maybe you you just met them, but you see a need and you want to step into it and show the generosity of Christ. And I encourage you to continue to get uncomfortable in order to love other people right where they are. The Bible says that we are called to be a part of binding up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captive. When he says this, he is referring specifically back to in Israel, they would celebrate what was called the year of Jubilee. You ever heard of that? The year of Jubilee was in Leviticus 25, and it was this. Every 50th year, regardless of circumstances, all slaves, all servants were freed. Anybody who carried any debt of any amount for any reason were made free, unconditionally. A beautiful Old Testament picture of what Jesus does here in our world. See, we make ourselves captive to a whole lot of things. Just a few verses later, Isaiah 61 and verse 7, it says this, Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of your disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. 
the word disgrace here, it's the word guilt, right? Guilt says you did something bad. The other word here in the text is shame. Shame is you are something bad. And the gospel is so powerful. In fact, it's the only thing that can solve both problems. When you feel and experience both of those, the gospel sets you free from both. Whether you are captive or have made yourself addicted to the multitude of things that we can bring ourselves captive to, some more obvious than others, we can find ourselves captive to to food, to shopping, to pornography, to gaming, to alcohol, to drugs. We can be captive to a broken relationship with a spouse or, or with a child. We can be captive to the pain of a past abortion But the root issue is you are still a slave to your guilt and your shame and to your past. And Jesus says, I bring freedom to the captive. And we want to be a church where you can lay your burdens down, where you can lay your guilt and your shame down, where you can lay down your wounds from the past at the foot of the cross and take up from King Jesus real and permanent freedom. That's the kind of church that we want to be, that we want to join in what Jesus is doing. He says, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is, Jesus is declaring a new era. Now, he says, is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. That is, past situations will change and the new is about to begin. Because God reigns now. God's kingdom is now. It is here now. An eternal pardon and adoption and restoration into the royal family of the King of kings and Lord of lords has been made available. And in the middle of all this good news, you get this seemingly very odd statement where he says, the day of vengeance of our God. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, ho, hey, hey. God, we liked all the, the freedom. I was awesome. Well, day of vengeance of God. That doesn't sound so inviting, does it? What he is saying is this, God hates sin. And so as a part of following God, we ought to hate sin and its effects as well. What he is saying is that God will bring justice. Injustices of all types will be made right. And we want to be, and I want to be, a a church that is a part of Jesus' mission that is changing the realities of the city and the country and the world that we live in, where the justice and, much greater, the mercy of God might be poured out in the gospel. That we can be a church of justice and mercy who cares for the fatherless, who cares for the widow, who cares for the victim, who cares for the abused, who cares for the hurting, who cares for the forgotten, who cares for the immigrant, who cares for those who have been set aside, misplaced, or ignored. The Bible says that there is comfort for all who mourn, and we want to be a part of that. He says that he will replace ashes with a garment of praise. In the Old Testament, when, when someone that you loved would die, They would literally rip their clothes, fall to the ground, and they would scoop up the dirt and the ashes and they would dump it over their head as a visual and physical expression of the grief and the sadness that they were experiencing. And Jesus is saying that I will replace that with a headdress of praise. I will replace your your mourning with dancing. I will replace your grief with joy. He's the only one who can do it, and he promises to do it, and he invites us to be a part of it. He says, they shall build up the ancient ruins. 
That is God's prayer that our city would be rebuilt. Not just the potholes in Palm Bay, although Jesus cares about the potholes too, but something so much greater. That is that what the enemy of God has torn down in our city, Jesus is rebuilding. And we get to be a part of that work. And Jesus never fails. Whether that be rolling paint on the walls at a public school or that be sitting with someone and sharing the gospel and praying with them to receive Jesus. And every moment in between the two, our broken world will be restored. And fourth and finally, we're given a promise of our, our future restored world. We live now in the already and the, and the not yet. Jesus has already come. We just celebrated that at Christmas. But he has not yet returned. There is a second coming when Jesus will ultimately make everything different. Look at Isaiah chapter 65, the next to last chapter of the whole book. Verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the sound of weeping and the cry of distress." The Apostle John, at the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, puts it this way in, in, in Revelation 21.5, and this is the scripture from which we take our church's vision statement. He, that is Jesus, who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises to bring a future restored world that one day our broken world will be unbroken. I shared with you a few weeks ago, and this experience for me has just continued to be in my heart and my mind, but I went to Southwest Middle School after a very beloved teacher, a very prominent teacher at the school, didn't wake up that morning for school. She passed away in her sleep, and I, along with several other pastors and staff from Brevard Public Schools, got called in that morning just to spend time with the staff who were devastated and heartbroken, and the students who were devastated and heartbroken. As I walked through the hallways of that school and, and stuck my head into different classrooms to check on staff and, and students, the grief and the sadness, the, the confusion that I saw was overwhelming. And I don't think it was just because that moment that day that they had lost someone that they loved. Our city, our, our, our schools, our world, they are walking around looking for answers to the inevitable questions that sometimes smack us in the face. Death is a reality. I sat with a seventh grade girl who said to me, why did this happen? I just want to know. And she was not asking the medical circumstances. She was asking, why did she have to die? And she didn't have an answer. It was clear. For us, for me in that moment, for all of us to be able to speak into people's lives to say grief is real and it matters and we should be sad in this awful moment that they lost a teacher that they loved. But the Bible says something more. It says we grieve, but we grieve as those who have not lost their hope. You see the difference? What I walked through in those hallways that day was people who were grieving without hope. And what God has called us to be is a church that communicates clearly that you do not have to grieve with no hope, that Jesus will return one day and he will restore what is broken. That Jesus has already come, that he has already made a way for salvation. 
that we can explain that we are all a part of God's story, that God created the world, that we sinned, that Jesus came into the world to redeem sinners, and that one day He will return one more time to restore and to make all things new, creation, sin, redemption, restoration. One day Jesus, the Messiah, will return to the earth, and we, He will bring with Him the eternal year of the Lord's favor, says Isaiah. I would invite anyone and everyone to realize that today is the day to respond to that promise, to that gift. All you have to do to receive it is ask. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. Trade with me, Lord Jesus, your perfect life for my sinfulness. Give me a new heart and a new life. Save me and he will do it. And all of us who have come to experience that same saving grace and rely on it every day, we join with King Jesus in restoring our broken world, our broken city by the power of the gospel. And we wait with great anticipation of his second coming. We long for the day that he will return, that he will make all things new. Amen? Let's pray together to King Jesus.